Did you know that Earth Destruction Directive is now on the Two True Freaks Podcast Network? Well, now you do. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome once more to the Earth Destruction Directive podcast. My name is Luke Giaconetti, and I will be your host on this trip into the wild, woolly, and often wacky world of Japanese giant monsters. I would like at this time to extend a big warm welcome to all of the listeners now listening to us on the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. A big shout out to uh, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell, who have uh, very graciously allowed me to broadcast the show here on the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. The Two True Freaks, of course, put out some of the finest nerd-related podcasts on the internet, including... The superlative shows Star Trek Monthly Monday, Star Wars Monthly Monday, Tales of the Justice Society of America, Back to the Bins, one of my favorite podcasts dealing with random conflict back issues, The Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, which features myself along with uh, Chris and the Hair Metal Hero, and shows like Comics Monthly Monday, Hope of All Trades, Death and the Acrid Smell of Gunsmoke, an excellent uh, Jonah Hex podcast, pretty much uh, anything... Uh, Geeky-related, you want to talk about, these boys cover it in some form or fashion, including now their very own Daikaiju podcast in the form of this very show. Today we are going to be talking about Godzilla vs. Biolanti, one of my favorite uh, films from the Hesai era, and we are going to get into that right after this quick message. Earth Destruction Directive. When you absolutely, positively need Tokyo leveled to the ground. And we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Our movie this episode is Godzilla vs. Biolanti. Godzilla vs. Biolanti was released in Japan in 1989. The director is Kazuki Omori. And special effects are by Koichi Kawakiri. Our movie starts during Godzilla's attack on Japan in 1984, specifically at the very end of it. After he falls into Mount Mahara, cleanup begins in Tokyo, including the collection of Godzilla cells. Now, there are several factions vying for them, including the Japanese Self-Defense Force, the American big farm firm Biomajor, and a lone agent of the tiny Middle Eastern nation of Saradia. The Saradians want to make a super wheat able to grow in the desert, and Japanese scientist Dr. Shiragami is recruited by them and uses the G-cells to try and create this plant. However, if they were to develop this plant, it would threaten America's position as the number one grain exporter in the world, and so Biomajor bombs the facility, and Shiragami's daughter Erika is killed in the attack, this ending the project and driving Shiragami into reclusion. Five years later, a group of, wait for it, psychic children, proving that this is Japan, predict the return of Godzilla, and thus the Japanese government makes some preparations. Up first is the Super X-2, an upgraded version of the Super X. 
which is armed with the fire mirror, which is a uh, big mirror made up of artificial diamonds. The idea being that it can reflect Godzilla's atomic breath right back at him. Super X2 also is armed with some conventional weapons as well, and instead of being uh, piloted like the Super X, it is piloted by remote control. Another preparation is a secret weapon, the anti-nuclear energy bacteria, which, as the name suggests, is a bacteria that eats nuclear material. They need Godzilla cells in order to create the bacteria, so Dr. Shiragami is recruited to work on the ANEB due to his previous Godzilla cell experience. And he agrees, but only if he can use some Godzilla cells for his own research. So on a dark and stormy night, he combines the G-cells with a rose, but not just any rose, a rose which he had spliced DNA from Erica into. This eventually changes the rose into a giant mutated monster which sets itself in the middle of Lake Hashi. The giant plant is dubbed Violance, after a flower spirit from Norse mythology. Still trying to get a hold of some G-cells, Biomajor now blackmails the Japanese government, threatening to detonate bombs which will release Godzilla. The government complies, but the deal goes south when the handoff is interrupted by that Saradian agent, who makes off with the G-cells. So Biomajor's bomb explodes, and Godzilla is released. Biolanti begins psychically calling to Godzilla, and after wading through a naval blockade and turning back the attack of the Super X-2, uh, and I should mention this is actually a really nice fight, the Super X-2 uses the fire mirror to keep reflecting Godzilla's beam back at him, but the heat is so much that it actually melts the fire mirror, and he is forced to retreat. So the two monsters meet in Lake Hashi. Biolanti is no match for Godzilla, despite her many vines and the caustic sap that she is able to spit from uh, certain tendrils. Eventually, Godzilla's beam does tremendous damage to Biolanti, and she dies, disappearing in a swarm of golden dust. Godzilla then moves towards Osaka, where the damaged Super X-2 is once again deployed. This time, the JSDF's plan is to inject Godzilla with ANEB, fired from handheld rocket launchers. This is uh, amusing, because this is actually very similar to the opening scenes from Godzilla X Megajirus, if you remember our coverage of that film, which featured the uh, JSTF team using handheld rocket launchers against the King of Monsters. So the Super X-2 fights valiantly, but is ultimately destroyed. But the mission is accomplished, with Godzilla injected with a lethal dose of ANEB. But after 14 hours, the bacteria has still not taken effect, when the scientists said it should have taken effect between 8 and 12. So it is speculated that Godzilla's body temperature is too low, since he's a reptile. So the King of Monsters is lured towards the Thunder Creation System, an experimental artificial lightning generator, which will be able to raise his temperature. Godzilla enters the TC grid and is repeatedly zapped, but the bacteria still seems to have no effect. When things seem darkest, down from the heavens comes Biolanti, but she is not the beautiful creature that she was previously. Godzilla's radiation has turned her into a towering hideous beast, half plant, half reptile, lumbering around on a huge system of roots, with a giant gaping maw filled with rows and rows of sharp teeth. The two titans clash violently, and the fate of the world hangs in the balance. And that's where I'm going to stop our story. And the reason I'm going to stop our story there is because there's a lot of plot and a lot of characters in this film, 
And my synopsis really only kind of scratches the surface, and I don't want to get too deep into trying to explain all of it, because every scene seems to bring along a new subplot that is resolved and carried forward, and I don't want to turn this into a Luke recites the movie sort of uh, podcast. Uh, we do have a lot of good characters. Shiragami, the doctor, is a really good character because he is tortured by his decisions and what he does. At one point, after the creation of Biolanti, he very, uh, you know, succinctly says, think now I may have made a mistake. And an interesting connection with his character is that he's in a lot of ways very similar to Dr. Serizawa uh, from the original Godzilla, who of course created the Oxygen Destroyer, and that both of them are, you know, working in fields of science for the benefit of man, but end up creating something horrible, and then they have to live with the repercussions of what they've done. So I like Shiragami. He's a good character. Our main character is a character named Kirishimi, and he is a young uh, geneticist, I should say, who works for the company which is producing the anti-nuclear energy bacteria, and he has some serious reservations about the use of these uh, of these bacteria and what this could mean to the balance of power in the world. Uh, he says to his boss at one point that, uh, you know, it, it would, like I said, it would shift the balance of power. And his boss's response is that if Japan, after being annihilated by nuclear bombs and Godzilla, don't we have the right to def- you know, create a weapon to defend ourselves? Uh, this is kind of the connective tissue in a thematic sense with Return of Godzilla because it still strives for that sort of real-world relevance, not so much with the nuclear power uh, and nuclear weapons side, like it was in Return of Godzilla, but here dealing with genetic engineering and manipulation. Uh, Our next character is Asuka. She is Kirishimi's girlfriend and the daughter of the president of the company that Kirishimi works for. Her main purpose in this is to also connect uh, these characters with Mickey Segusa. And Mickey is, of course, the head of the psychic children, uh, at the school that Asuka runs. Now, Mickey would become a recurring character in the Hesai Godzilla films. In fact, the only character who appears uh, more than her is Godzilla himself. And her psychic abilities grow and grow as the films go on. Uh, here, she is used to kind of track uh, Godzilla's activity and movement. And at one point, she, the, the JSDF uses her as a blockade, uh, where she psychically engages Godzilla's mind in order to keep him in, in place for a few minutes and delay his uh, arrival in Osaka. Mickey's, uh, she doesn't have a whole lot to do here. She would get fleshed out more as the series carried on. Uh, another major character is Major Kuroki. And Kuroki, he is the young man who is in charge of the defense of Japan uh, from Godzilla. And it's mentioned that he is uh, a member of a new elite young uh, unit that is uh, the JSDF has organized. And uh, this is kind of metatextual because... You know, here we have this young man uh, shouldering this monumental task of defending the country from Godzilla. And behind the scenes, you know, director Amori and FX uh, wizard Kawakita, they were also both young men. And this was their, you know, first big-time shot at doing a Godzilla film. So uh, it, there's, you know, some metatextual commentary there as well. Uh, Kuroki is a good character. You can see with every twist and turn of the plot, he's always thinking of some new way to defend his country from Godzilla, and he's very bold in his actions. You know, typical sort of young military commander role in a Japanese film. Uh, His associate is Colonel Gondo, and Gondo is a grizzled, older, kind of been there, seen that um, uh, veteran who uh, he always kind of has a smirk on his face. I really like Colonel Gondo. He's a very funny character. He is responsible for two of the best lines in the film. One comes early on when um, the military is getting a tour of the facility that has built the Super X-2. And the 
chief scientist is explaining the heat shielding uh, on the Super X2 can withstand some ridiculous temperature. I think it's like 12,000 degrees or something. And Gondo asides to his aid. He goes, hot stuff. To which the scientist quickly goes, yes, it is. And that always cracked me up. Me and my friend Bob, we used to recite that back and forth at each other in high school. It's a great line. His other line comes when he leads the attack with the uh, ANEB uh, rockets in Osaka. And uh, after two uh, rockets have successfully hit Godzilla, Godzilla comes up on Gondo's position on the top of the skyscraper. And Gondo turns around and shoots uh, his rocket right down Godzilla's throat. Uh, a direct hit. And he says to Godzilla, you should lay off the um, intravenous stuff. It's going to kill you. And uh, so that, that cracked me up. What's funny also is in the Japanese version, he actually in that scene calls Godzilla Gojira-san, uh, which is amusing because nobody calls Godzilla Gojira-san. You, you don't refer to him in a familiar way like that. So that definitely cracked me up. The last character I want to mention is the Saradian agent. Now, in the script, his name is SSS9. And I've seen the Japanese version and the American version. I don't think his name is ever mentioned on screen. So I'm just, you know, I don't know if that was just in the script or got cut or what. But he's a cool character. He looks like he stepped out of a James Bond film. In a lot of ways, he reminds me of Malness from Gira the Three-Headed Monster, in that he's a human antagonist that is very doggedly pursuing his uh, mission the entire film. Plus, he wears a suit and sunglasses like uh, Malness as well. Uh, he, he's a very memorable character, and he uh, has the the historic line of, Damn! Godzilla! And, you know, if you can't say it with Damn Godzilla, what what can you say? As I mentioned earlier, there is a, a lot of plot in this film. There's a lot of little subplots, uh, you know, the ongoing plots with Saradia and Biomajor and Shirigami and the A&EB and, you know, Kuroki's Defense of Japan. There's a lot of different stuff going on. This is very much an unabashed and... Uh, unapologetic science fiction film. It makes no qualms about that. But it's a science fiction adventure film. There's this, you know, set pieces move from one to the other to the other. And even if we're not getting, you know, giant monster action, we're getting a gunfight or we're getting a chase or something of that nature. So uh, definitely a science fiction adventure film. I think the film is uh, uh, more successful because of that. Uh, Just some interesting notes here. At the beginning of the film, we see an aftermath of an attack. And this is a rare sight in a Godzilla film, which is odd, but it, it's true. It would uh, get another connection back to the original, where the film opens with the ruins of Tokyo. And in the American version, of course, we get Raymond Burr's This is Tokyo monologue to start. Uh, in this case, it's a little bit different. It's not focusing so much on the pain and suffering, but it is focusing on you know, the, that this great city has to be rebuilt, and, and of course, the Godzilla cells. Uh, part of that part of that scene we're introduced to the song bio wars and bio wars is kind of an upbeat guitar heavy number that is uh used kind of as the main theme for this film it shows up several other times in the film uh it's one of my favorites from the uh, modern era uh as far as non you know not reused music from the old school uh very different sounding the um the guitar sound makes it a great kind of driving action number and uh, it's used when the different groups are fighting over the G-cells in, in Tokyo, and then later we see it with different uh, fights and, and whatnot. Uh, the score in general in this film is really good. Excuse me. And uh, it, it's one of my favorites of the Hesai era. BioWars is part of it. There's a really nice uh, theme for the country of Saradia that unfortunately only gets like a 10-second clip in the movie, which is kind of kind of sad, but it's a real nice piece. 
And then you get your traditional marches and battle themes and things of that nature, too. Um, I want to talk about monster combat a little bit, because this is the first film, obviously, of the Hesai era to feature two monsters fighting. Uh, and the combat is astounding. Okay, This is such a change from what we were used to at the tail end of the, of the Showa era, even the golden age of the Showa era. Just the, uh, the, the clash between Godzilla and Violante's second form is brutal and visceral and in-your-face, and it just, you know, and, and it's helped tremendously by the effects. The effects are top-notch. Um, the Bio-Goji suit, as the Godzilla suit is referred to um, from this film, is a lot of fans' favorite, and for a good reason, because he really looks good. It's a slightly bulkier suit than the one used in Return of Godzilla. Uh, snarling mouth, you know, big teeth, very muscular, very big chest, big arms kind of thing. And uh, it moved really well. They, they've improved the motion, ca- uh, excuse me, the cable control puppet for the close-ups on the head a hundredfold in Return of Godzilla. And they look great in Return of Godzilla, but now they're able to get really subtle character motion out of the head. It really looks good. During the scene in Osaka, right when the Super X-2 is switching over to using conventional missiles, its missile rack pops up and it takes aim on Godzilla, and we get a close-up where his eyes widen just a little bit, and it's a really nice character moment that you could never have pulled off prior to the uh, Hesai era and the level of effects they had access to. But in the fight between Godzilla and Violence, we get some, some pretty nasty stuff. Uh, Godzilla, um, Godzilla is victim to several of Violin's impacts, including one of her tendrils pierces him right through the hand and another through the shoulder. And these are pretty graphic. These are easily the most graphic um, uh, fight scenes since, you know, Gigan used his uh, buzzsaw in Godzilla vs. Gigan and Godzilla vs. Megalon, actually the same scene for you, where Godzilla is uh, cut on the head and shoulder. Here, it, it's a close-up of this, and this tendril just punching right through him. Uh, furthermore, uh, Violante's acidic sap um, is a pretty gruesome weapon as well because uh, it's just like a green slime that she regurgitates, and it really looks like it's burning Godzilla's skin. It's pretty, pretty effective and nasty. We also get the uh, first instance of Godzilla's nuclear pulse attack, and several times during both fights, Godzilla's wrapped up with Violante's vines, and so... Instead of shooting a beam, he kind of chomps down, and uh, you see the, uh, the radioactive energy surge through his body, and it causes all the vines wrapping him up to explode. This would be a very common uh, thing we'd see Godzilla do later, but this was the first time he used it. The monster combat in this film is excellent. This was a um, kind of a standout fight for the Hesai era, in my mind, because the Hesai era a lot of times is, and not wrongfully, accused of having their fights being just beam wars with Godzilla and his foe shooting beams at each other back and forth. This one is up close and personal, you know. Uh, Violante has a very short-range weapon when she shoots staff from her mouth, but, you know, it's Godzilla wrestling with her and her tendrils. So, definitely a physical confrontation. Uh, Just an interesting side note, mentioned Osaka previously. Um, This is the second film of the Hesai era, and Godzilla winds up in Osaka. In the second film of the Showa era, which was Godzilla Rage Again, where does Godzilla end up? Osaka. I don't know if that was intentional, but I, I, it was a couple months ago, I got the DVD of Godzilla Rage Again, and I watched it, and so I noticed all the Osaka settings, and then when I threw this on, it clicked in my brain. I was like, hey, it's two second film, second film, Osaka, Osaka. So I don't know if that was intentional, but a neat reference nonetheless. Um, there, there's some uh, 
like I said, there there is some just some real world relevance type of plotting going on here. Uh, again, mostly revolving around uh, science instead of um, you know, nuclear science in this case. It's genetics and uh, genetic engineering. Certainly a hot button issue in the late 80s as it is now. So I applaud the the use of the real world topics because it gives the film a certain sort of gravitas and gets away from the more juvenile stuff that we got in the Showa era. And obviously this was started with Return of Godzilla, but they continue it here. And they would get away with this as the Hesai era continued, but I'm glad to see it here, and I think it improves this film a lot. Uh, we do get some uh, discussion, again, as the, you know, j- can de- Japan develop a weapon to defend itself? We're, we're moving into the era in Japan where nationalism was not frowned upon anymore, and the ability to defend yourself and have weapons and be a superpower was, was accepted. You know, for a long time in Japanese culture, this was not the case. So that's definitely reflected here. Asuka's father, you know, his attitude is, you know, we need to develop weapons and defend ourselves from Godzilla and all of our enemies. And if that changes the balance of power in the world, tough. Because it's Japan that benefits from that. And, and this is hard for an American audience sometimes to understand because nationalism is not usually vilified in the United States, but for a long time it was viewed in a very negative light in Japan. Um, if you look at some older films like Atragon, uh, the main character in Atragon is a Japanese nationalist, and he is a villain because of it, because he puts Japan before the rest of the world. So this was definitely a change of pace and a change of attitude. It makes for interesting viewing. We get some great lines of dialogue in this movie. Um, one of my favorites is right when Biolanti first appears in Lake Hashi. Um, you know, Kirishimi and Shirogama and uh, Asuka are all there. And Kirishimi just looks right at Shirogami and says, what kind of science do you call that? And it's just one of those typical, you know, what has, what has science wrought type of quotes that we all love so much in science fiction. So that, that one is, is a good one. The one that really stands out to me is when Godzilla is making his way towards Lake Hashi, Asuka makes the comment that, of course, they were drawn together. They're from the same family. To which Shiragami corrects her, saying that because they're made from the same cells, they are not brother and sister. They are the same creature. Now, I'm not really sure how that works logically, but it certainly is a cool line of dialogue, and so I'm willing to let it slide. Uh, I mentioned the uh, hot stuff, yes it is, line. Uh, That is just a comedy classic, as far as I'm concerned. This film had a couple of deleted scenes that I'd like to talk about uh, real quick. One... Um, is the aftermath of Godzilla's battle with Biolanti and Lake Hashi. After Godzilla blasts Biolanti, she turns into golden uh, pollen-like dust that floats away. The original uh, script called for the dust to settle on the hills around Lake Hashi and turn them into just blankets of blooming roses. And this scene was actually shot and the effects completed. And, uh, in fact, there's a couple of screen caps out there. I have it on my Japanese DVD. I have the actual scene. And I think it looks great. It's, uh, you know, just a real striking visual of Godzilla surrounded by all these flowers. Now, for whatever reason, this was taken out. And, you know, I'm not going to second-guess the filmmaker in that sense. But I think it's neat. I'm definitely going to put a screen cap of that. I know uh, Toho Kingdom has a, a, a nice screen cap of that um, on their website. So I'll definitely put that on the blog for you folks to see. The other deleted scene I want to talk about comes at the very end of the uh, second fight between Godzilla and Biolanti. Uh, Godzilla succumbs to the anti-nuclear energy bacteria and collapses. And in the actual cut of the film, Biolanti just kind of leaves, and then, you know, we get some, some story to finish up the story after that. 
in the original take, Biolanti was going to absorb the anti-nuclear energy bacteria on, away from Godzilla, and this was going to be accomplished with a combination of live action and animus. Now, I know what you're saying, that sounds really weird. Now, I've seen the clip, it's actually pretty cool. And I'm not an anime fan by any means. I've got a few I like, but I'm, I don't consider myself an anime fan, and I'm, you know, nobody else really would either. But the way that this looks with, um, you know, basically we see the suit of Violante roaring, and this very slowly, this very uh, subtly, I should say, dissolves into an animated version of her. And then the animated version leaps towards Godzilla and, and morphs back into her uh, first stage form and, you know, engulfs Godzilla and then floats away into the pollen. It's actually a really neat and visually striking scene. This one I can kind of understand why they wouldn't want to leave it in. I mean, it would be kind of jarring to go from live action to animation, but you know what? Take a chance. You know, that, that would be my attitude. I really like this one. I, I really am going to try and find a video clip of it. Again, I've got it on my DVD, but I don't know how to rip anything off a DVD, so I'm pretty worthless in that respect. But I really want to share this. If nothing else, I do know Toho Kingdom has one uh, screenshot, so I will definitely uh, post a link to that. But I would really like to get, see if I can find the video of this, just to show it to you guys. Um, one last interesting note. Uh, we do get some continuity, obviously, between this and, and Return of Godzilla. We would get continuity between all the Hesai films. My favorite little bit of continuity comes when Kirishimi and Asuka are uh, they're meeting for drinks in uh, Tokyo. And they are having drinks at the Godzilla Memorial Lounge. Now, this is a building that has a giant Godzilla footprint through it. The implication being that he stepped on this building in 1984, and now it's been turned into a memorial. Uh, I really like that bit. I'm not really sure how they built this, because the building's kind of leaning on its side with a footprint on it, but it's still standing up. So I'm not really sure how it works, but it's, it's a neat little, uh, little trivia note. Uh, in closing, I just want to say... Oh, I'm sorry, I'm not done yet. I need to talk about availability. Specifically, that there is very little availability for this film. The HBO got the distribution rights from Toho for this film in, I think, like 1990, 1991, something like that. And so they showed it a lot on HBO, and they did release it on VHS. Now, for whatever reason, HBO doesn't seem to want to release this on DVD. And that doesn't make any sense to me, because you're just leaving money on the table. Um, if you want to find it, I know you can find VHS copies on eBay. They're not as plentiful as VHS copies of Godzilla 1985, but they are out there. You also can get a Hong Kong DVD. Please, please, please make sure your DVD player can play Hong Kong DVDs before you buy one. I don't want anybody writing me and saying, Luke, you told me to buy a Hong Kong DVD and I can't play it. Please check to see that you can play it before you order it. Okay, these typically have Cantonese and English subtitles, so you got it subbed. So please take care of that before you do that, okay? That would be my advice. But in closing for the film, I want to say that Godzilla's Violante is an excellent follow-up to God, uh, Godzilla 1985, Return of Godzilla, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it got the Hesai series going in a real good direction. It's got great effects, a great story, a fabulous monster in the form of Violante, uh, some real nice characters, great action. You know, you can't beat this film. If you can find a copy of it, I suggest you track it down and watch it. You will not be disappointed in Godzilla vs. Violence. I'm going to take a quick break. We will be right back to close the show here on Earth Destruction Directive. Hey, kids! Comics! Hey, Michael! Yes? We have to record a promo for our podcast. I've got one. Read our podcast. Read. 
our podcast. You do know this is an audio medium. Watch our podcast. Well, you can watch podcasts, but not ours, because let's face it, we've got faces for radio. Uh, no, wait, I've got it. Give me a second, right? What? Just listen to our podcast. Listen to our podcast. Snap it. It's short, sweet. I'm liking it. It's good. It's great. Not exactly telling people what our podcast is about, though, is it? We read comics. We read comics. That's true. That's good. Liking it. Liking this pitch. Carry on. Right. We talk about comics. We do. We talk about comics. We read comics, and then we talk about them, because we can't talk about them before we read them. Excellent. Keep going. And then... We sing! Badly! Yes, well, badly is purely subjective, but how many other comic book podcasts do you know where people sing? Aikis Comics! Every Thursday at aplayland.podomatic.com Okay, welcome back to Earth Destruction Directive. At this time, I'd like to read a couple of emails that we got here to the show. If you would like to be on the show, please send an email to earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com, and I will be sure to read your comments on the show. Our first email comes from Timothy Elliott, and Tim's subject is Love the Podcast. Hi, Luke. I'm catching up on your older episodes. I'm up to number five, which uh, number five was Gamera, I'm pretty sure. And I wanted to write and let you know how much I am enjoying the show. I discovered your show through the Two True Freaks podcast. Well, imagine that. I think the shows you do with Chris and the Hair Metal Hero are great. Um, Timothy is referring to our The Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror horror podcast, which you can find on the Two True Freaks podcast network. He continues, I've been a bit of a closet Gojira fan all my life and just did not realize how much I love the big guy until I started listening to shows like yours. I think your show length is just about right, not too long or short. I like the fact that you give a synopsis synopsis of the film and don't just assume we, the listeners, have seen it. Just an aside, Timothy, this was real important to me because listen to some podcasts, and like, we're going to talk about XYZ, and they never tell you what XYZ is actually about. It's like, well, how do I know if I want to see it or not? And I know not everybody has seen every Godzilla movie, so, you know, majority of these films are not exactly epics. You know, this one happened to be one. So just giving a little synopsis so you know what's going on, I don't understand what the big deal is about that, why some people don't do that. So I'm glad you enjoy that. Tim continues, I was curious if you can suggest any books that delve deeper into the history and mythos of Daikaiju monsters and the men that create them. I would ask if, if you could suggest any sources of some of the harder-to-find Daikaiju films on DVD. Sorry, sounds like I'm just picking your brain for information, but I really do love your show. Keep them coming, Luke, and thanks, Tim from Texas. Well, Tim, thank you very much for your email. Uh, as far as books, I do have a couple that I think might be good reads for um, you know new or, uh, or even existing fans looking just to learn more about Daikaiju. One is a very quick read called Godzilla on My Mind by William Susui. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. You can definitely you can find this on Amazon. I just looked it up earlier today. It is available. Now, this uh, this book is basically the author's take on the cultural impact of Godzilla, especially here in the United States. And he deals a lot with his history growing up with the King of the Monsters. And I like this book a lot. Like I said, it's a quick read. Um, it's not if you're looking for a definitive reference, this is not it, but definitely worth reading uh, just to get a, a, an idea of the importance of Godzilla. Now, as far as a reference, a book I received as a gift last year that I really like is A Critical History and Filmography of Toho's Godzilla Series by David Kalat. That's K-A-L-K. 
K-A-L-A-T. And that is also available on Amazon. Now, this one is a much more in-depth look at the production of each film, along with the behind-the-scenes stuff that was going on at Toho, the behind-the-scenes stuff going on in the Japanese film industry. This is a very good read, very detailed and very informative, and I would highly recommend that one. Uh, what I tend to do is I read the chapter on each film after I watch it to help prepare myself to do the show. So definitely a good pickup. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, as far as DVDs, uh, the thing is, majority of the DVDs of the films that used to be, quote-unquote, hard to find, are now available on commercial DVD. Um, Sony has released pretty much all of the Godzilla films, except for, as we talked about, you know, Godzilla... Uh, Return to Godzilla 1985 and Godzilla vs. And Shriek Show, their Japanese imprint, which is called Tokyo Shock, they've released a lot of the non-Godzilla Toho films like The Mysterians, Matango, Varan, Dogura, things of that nature. Uh, if you if you look in public domain sources like uh, Alpha Video, which you can find at oldies.com, you can find a lot of the public domain versions of the Gamera films, of Gappa, Yangari, things of that nature. Now, the, if you want to get copies of Godzilla 1985 or Godzilla vs. Bionic, you can get a Hong Kong DVD off of eBay. Uh, typically, these have Cantonese and English subtitles, so they are viewable. Just make sure your player can play them, because there's nothing worse than you know getting tearing open that package, seeing Godzilla 1985 thrown in and says, Disc Unreadable. Okay, so make sure you can play them before you do that. Beyond that, most of the other hard-to-find films are the so-called banned movies. And by this I mean things like Half Human and Prophecies of Nostradamus, and you will not find these. Um, Toho basically pulled them from circulation years ago and is actually actively making sure that people don't even sell bootlegs of them. WTF Film, the old version of WTF Film, uh, they sold like a seven-disc Prophecies of Nostradamus set for a while, and I never could buy it because it was always out of stock every time I tried to buy it. But uh, now even that's unavailable, and it's amazing that someone who has that hasn't started bootlegging it. But, you know, I don't know. It's kind of a gray area with these completely unavailable films. And, like I said, I, I, I'd love to track them down, but I have exhausted sources trying to find half-human and prophecies of Nostradamus. In fact, I have my brother, every time he goes to a show, just look for him, and we haven't come across him yet. Well, Tim, I hope you continue to enjoy the show, and I hope to hear from you again. So thank you very much for writing. Our next email comes from Jason Trenner, who is known as Fanboy Miss Prime on the uh, Two True Freaks boards. And Jason writes, I loved the Inhumanoids episode. That one was especially awesome, and I went out and have been watching the show. Oh, yeah, that's the stuff. Oh, and a certain news reporter from the Inhumanoids is the tie that holds Jem, G.I. Joe, Inhumanoids, and the Transformers as a single universe. And Jason is absolutely right. The character of Hector Ramirez who appears in Inhumanoids, also appears on those other shows playing the same character. This helps put all of them in the same universe, the Sunbow Hasbro universe. What's also interesting is that the Inhumanoids themselves make a little cameo on Gem. And as cool as it would be to have you know Gem in the holograms or the Misfits playing and have the concert be attacked by the Inhumanoids, what actually goes down is Gem is on the news and everyone is standing in front of the uh, electronics store watching it except the one little kid sitting on the ground watching the one TV showing the Inhumanoids. And it always makes me wonder, is he watching Inhumanoids TV coverage, or are the Inhumanoids attacking somewhere, and that's less important than Jem? 
You know, so we have to ask these questions. He continues, and in the AllSpark Almanac 2, Augur is listed as one of the presidents of the United States, though he didn't serve any terms. Oh, those AllSpark Almanacs. I'm even listed in one of them. Sort of. It's a long story. Well, I'd like to hear that story at some point, um, Jason, if you don't mind. Another interesting thing, real quick, about the Inhumanoids and the AllSpark Almanacs. In the Transformers universe, there is a mythos called the Shattered Glass universe, and this is sort of akin to Star Trek's Mirror Universe where good is evil and evil is good, well, the Inhumanoids are still evil. Uh, they're sort of like an elemental evil force that's always evil no matter where. I think that is great. Because I can't see Metlar as a good guy. That actually comes up later in Inhumanoids, and it just is ridiculous, but it's played for jokes, so it's okay. Chase continues, but I digress. Looking forward to every episode of the show, and if Dweller in the Depths will be reviewed on this show or the so long a title, even Chris Honeywell can't remember at all that you do with Hair Metal Hero, and the aforementioned Chris Honeywell. Um, just an aside again, Dweller in the Depths is an episode of Transformers that we've been talking about on the boards for a while. Um, anyway, uh, he continues, And will Godzilla the Animated Series be reviewed? Given, given it was the only good thing to come out of that horrible 90s American Godzilla movie. Then again, it gave Godzilla his atomic breath back, and having him fight other monsters will solve some of the major problems that crap fest had. Keep up the good work, Jason. Uh, I do intend to cover Godzilla the Animated Series. I did see a good bit of that show when it was airing initially. I was in college when that show aired. But it's been years. It's been years and years. Now, they do have the so-called mini-sodes of that show on uh, Crackle.com. So it'd probably be pretty quick just to watch some of those and get caught back up and do it from there. I definitely do want to talk about that series, though. I think that series was um, much better than the film that spawned it. I think that series also proves that the problem with the film was not Zilla or Gino, whatever you want to call them, that it was the film and not the monster. And I think that's an important distinction to make. Thank you very much for writing in, Jason. And again, if, they, if anyone out there would like to uh, be on the show, the email address is earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Oh, man, I tell you, the, uh, once the weather starts getting cold, and warm. See, here in South Carolina, a lot of times it's cold in the morning, and then it's like 65, 70 by lunchtime, and the change in temperature just messes with me every year. Never had this problem in New York because it would, it would get cold and stay cold. Down here you get nicer weather, but it's just, oh, this gives me headaches, and you, know, you can hear I've got a bit of a, a post-nasal drift thing going on. All right, right now I would like to talk a little bit about our new deal with uh, the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. I've been talking to Chris about this, and... Uh, those of you, if this is your first episode of Earth Construction Directive, don't fear. Not only can you go to our blog page, which is the home of the show on the Internet, which is earthdestructiondirective.blogspot.com, where I have all the previous episodes posted for your download and listening pleasure. But Chris and I have talked about putting some of the older episodes on the feed, uh, you know, later on down the line. So you might be seeing some classic EDD episodes coming up on your Two True Freaks feed. So download and enjoy those as well. Uh, speaking of the blog, if you don't feel like writing an email, you can, of course, surf over to the blog and uh, leave a comment on a post, and I will gladly read those on the show as well. Also, uh, as far as the forum, now that I'm part of the Two True Freaks uh, network, you can get over to www.forum4geeks.com, head on down to the Two True Freaks section, and there'll be a thread for Earth Destruction Directive, so you can share your thoughts there as well. My handle is ljacone, which is L-J-A-C-O-N-E. That also is my handle on Twitter, so if you're on uh, Twitter, you can send me a message there, and I'll get back to you. 
I post all sorts of stuff, not just uh, EDD-related stuff on there, but I, I like Twitter a lot. So they say brevity is the soul of wit, so maybe that's a cliche, but I think it's perfect for me. It forces me to not ramble on all the time, just to be concise. And uh, I guess this time I'd like to give a big thanks to Scott and Chris for letting my show join their network. Um, you know, this show's a labor of love for me. This show is, uh, was inspired by the Get Off Your Ass and Make, Make Your Own Damn Podcast show that they did a couple years ago. And, you know, I took that to heart. And I figured out, hey, I can record on my MP3 player. And then <laughs> I can make my own podcast. And, Dale, and I'm going to do a Godzilla podcast. I'm going to do the best damn Godzilla podcast that I can do. And I, I try my best every month to bring you guys the best Godzilla podcast that I can. And I hope you guys enjoy it because I assure that can enjoy me. Anyway, next time on Earth Destruction Directive, we are going to be talking about um, a comic book series once again. We're going to be talking about the recently completed miniseries Godzilla, Gangsters, and Goliath from IDW Publishing. Now, you might remember if you heard the episode about Godzilla Kingdom of Monsters that I did mention this uh, series briefly, mostly in the format that Godzilla, King, uh, Godzilla, yeah, that God, yeah, Gangsters and Goliath was good and Kingdom of Monsters was not good. So we're going to take a look at this series. I think the trade paperback was very recently released. You can definitely pick that up if you didn't get the single issue. And uh, we're going to take a look at this and, of course, read any emails or anything else that we get sent into us here. So uh, come back next time for Gangsters and Goliath. And until then, keep them stomping. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible. <laughs>